we've been on uh, in a series on the theology of the body, as Jess just said, and what we've been saying over the last few weeks is that the Christian faith uh, is very uh, material and very earthy. Um, it's embodied. The Christian faith is one that's embodied. It begins, as we talked about last week, with God's hands in the dirt, in the dust, uh, creating humanity out of the elements of the earth, and then breathing into humanity the breath of life. Uh, the Hebrew word is ruach, the, the animation of God, the spirit of God. He breathes into us, and we're animated beings. And not only that, we have this belief uh, that God himself became flesh. Incarnate is the word. Um, in the person of Jesus, that Jesus, God, that in Jesus, God lives as a human being uh, with a body, flesh and blood. Um, and all that goes into that and with, with that. God in Christ became mortal and he became sexual and he became subject to illness and smell and hum- all the other humbling bodily processes. Uh, God took on a body. And uh, far from trying to escape the body, as people in the church and, and especially in the Christian faith are often taught to do, uh, God embraces the human body and lives an embodied experience. And the gospels also teach us that uh, the resurrection of Jesus happens in his body. We proclaim and will very soon proclaim on Easter morning that Jesus physically rose from the grave. And our creeds and our teachings assert that there will be a resurrection of every body for all who are in Christ. The body will resurrect for those who have died in Christ. And not just that, the gospels tell of how Jesus, the night before his crucifixion, took bread and wine, two of the best things on planet Earth, thanks be to God, and he gave thanks over it, and he shared it with his disciples, saying, this is my body broken for you, and uh, this is my blood given for you. And ever since, it's been a universal practice of followers of Jesus that this embodied God who gave himself for us, that we would receive bread and wine and give thanks, and by doing so, we proclaim the death of Jesus and all it means until he comes again. And so we take physical elements, wine and bread, to remember Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, we start our life of discipleship to Jesus with a ritual that we call baptism, in which the body is submerged underwater and brought up again. There is no spiritual baptism for conversion, meaning there's no baptism without the the body being in contact with water. Some faith traditions do sprinkling, we do submersion, Submersion? Submersion, there you go, thank you. But the body has to come in contact with water. And so, Fraser Watts, in his book, Plea for Embodied Spirituality, says, we thus have a sweeping and comprehensive set of doctrinal reasons and mainstream practices for regarding the body as having a central place in the purposes of God and the life of Christians. And yet, despite all of this, there's a tendency to take a negative view of the body sometimes to ignore it and to try to rise above it. And so what we've been doing in this series, Theology of the Body, we've been attempting to teach a fully embodied discipleship to Jesus. That is, we've been trying to teach and practice in our services a way to follow Jesus that isn't just a mental pursuit. You are not just brains on a stick, but a whole-bodied saying, a whole-bodied yes to the way of Jesus. That's what we've been trying to do. So what I'd like to do this morning is like we do um, every morning in this, in this series is open with a meditation. So if you can, please, um, as people are coming in and, and taking their seats, would you um, just, just be in your body right now? Sometimes we think we bring our minds to church and that's it. No, I'll, I'll bring our whole bodies to church. 
Would you put both your feet flat on the ground so you don't carry any tension in your body? Open your hands to God. Take a few deep breaths. Put your coffee down if you need to. Take a few deep breaths. Breathe deep into your, your diaphragm and your stomach. And as we talked about last week, breath, ruach, spirit, pneuma, it's all like, it's, it's, um, it's what God breathes into us. Our very breath comes from God's breath. Take a few deep breaths. And as you do, I'd like you to say something to the effect of, God, here I am, present to you who's always present to me. I want you to think about your body this last week in regards to the things that you've wanted the things that you've desired. Think about your your longings. Maybe this last week, reading the news, you've longed for justice and you felt it deep into your belly, a longing for justice. Maybe this last week, you had this sense of a wanderlust reemerging. You wanted to travel, you haven't traveled in a while. Maybe you were just surprised by wanting something you never thought you would want. Maybe sexual desire awakened in you in a, in a different way. Whatever your desires, whatever your longings, bring them to God now. Meaning, place before God all of who you are and say, Here I am, my longings and desires, and all. The whole hope of the Christian faith is that we would learn how to aim our longings and our desires to God. To channel them, all the longings and desires we have to God. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where When can I go and meet with God? The answer to that question right now is now, Lord, we can meet with you right now. Would you be with us? Teach us. I pray that, I mean, I actually just submit all of my capacities to you, ask that you would use me this morning. I wanna be helpful to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's a picture of Mother Teresa and Janis Joplin. Janis Joplin, obviously from San Francisco. Um, This is how one of my favorite books on spirituality of all time opens up. Ronald Roheiser, in his book, The Holy Longing, starts his book by looking at the lives of these famous two women to illustrate that what spirituality really is, what it all really boils down to, is how we handle our desire. But what does desire have to do with the body? Our bodies come into the world full of desire and longing. We enter into it, this life, if we're fortunate, crying, longing for comfort, for our mother's chest, for warmth. 
And from there, our desire just grows and grows and grows. The Greek word for this is eros. Now, eros gets a bad rap, especially in the church. We, could, we associate eros with erotic love, and erotic love is bad love. It's typically agape that we're after in the church. Agape is like an unconditional love. But that would be to put the cart before the horse. Eros is the fire and passion that we're all born with. We all have Eros. Eros is the energy inside of our bodies that drive us to want things and to want to do things. Eros is why my daughter loves the trampoline and loves to jump off of things. She loves, if you stay after second service, you'll see her jumping off all of these, every pew, she'll, everything that's bouncy. She's like, that's my trampoline, I'm jumping off. This is, this is like energy inside of her that she feels like she can jump really high. Our couch, anything dangerous, she's jumping off of it, okay? This is the eros inside of my daughter that loves, and it's like a fire in her belly that she can't not jump. She can't, have you ever told a kid that's like, to not, don't jump. You're like, no, no, I, 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 need, I, need to, I need to jump right now. If I don't jump right now, I will explode. That's eros, right? That's energy. That is even erotic energy like pent up inside of children. And it's kindled by doing the very thing that she loves to do. Jumping leads to like more jumping and it grows and grows and grows. This is eros, this is desire, this is passion, this is longing. This is why some people can't stay put. Like in their bodies, they can't stay put. You have to keep moving. This is eros. This is why some people can't quench their search for knowledge. You can't know enough. This is eros. This is why some people can't stop looking for intimacy. This is eros. This passion, this desire, longing, this lives in our bones, in our bodies. So what does desire have to do with our bodies? Everything. There's one sense that we are what we want. We are what we desire, what we long for. Which is why Jesus' first question in the book of John is, what do you want? John 1.38. The question is at the beginning of John's gospel to haunt you. To, so that you continue to ask this question as you read the life and the teachings and the miracles and the passion of Jesus. What do you really want? He asked this question because we are what we want. Our wants, our longings, and our desires are at the core of our identity. Where all of our action and behaviors flow from our body flows from our wants, our longings. We've already established over the last two weeks that I believe Descartes was wrong when he said, I think, therefore I am. We are not fundamentally thinking creatures. We do think, but we're not fundamentally thinking creatures. If we're not fundamentally thinking creatures, then what are we? St. Augustine would say that we are fundamentally desiring creatures. We are creatures that desire, we want, we long, we desire. This desire lives in our bones. It sets our whole selves on fire to want to want to travel, to want to find the best wine, to want to spend all day at a museum, to want to give your life in the service of someone else, to want to find someone who will love you in return. And to ignore this part of our embodied selves would do you a very bad disservice in your discipleship to Jesus. If you think that becoming a Christian leaves, you have to leave all of your wanting somewhere else, you would, you would 
you would miss what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Desire is what drove my wife and I to leave our hometown in Bakersfield, California some many years ago, sell everything that we owned. We had a house at the time, and I took a job at Starbucks so we can plant this church. Desire did that. Not common sense. That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Desire, longing did that. I remember I would be on my computer back in the, like when I was in my early 20s on dial-up internet, looking at places where I might want to plant a church one day. I had this deep longing and desire to start a new faith community. It was a desire that was within me. It was desire that led us here. It was desire that drove my wife into recovery for a, a very long battle with an eating disorder several years ago. Her first day there, they asked, why, why are you here? And she said, I want to have a baby, and if that's ever going to be possible, I have to physically heal. Desire. Desire works to drive us to the things that we want. But desire works in the other direction too. It was my desire to plant this church that led me to do this at all costs, no matter what it led me, what, what, what happened. It, to where I wanted to plant this church so bad, I would, do, I would work, I would overwork, I would extend myself, and it led me to burnout and broken relationships. And I'm something I'm still very prone to to this day. Desire works in the other direction. It was desire that led my wife into the eating disorder in the first place. I was there, I remember. Desire can lead us to our best places or our worst places. Roheiser says, desire makes us act, and when we act, what we do will either lead to great, greater integration or disintegration within our personalities, minds, and bodies, and to the strengthening or the deterioration of our relationship with God, others, and the cosmic world. Our desire will cause us to act, and how we act will either lead to greater integration and flourishing or disintegration and brokenness within our persons, our bodies, our minds, our community. It will either lead to strengthening our relationship with God or deteriorating our, our, our relationship with God. Desire does this. So Roheiser starts his book by looking at the lives of these two famous women to illustrate what spirituality really is, what it all boils down to, how we handle our desire. Because desire is what, is what fires the passions deep inside of us. Desire is that unquenchable fire we live with, the restlessness, the longing, the disquiet, the hunger, the loneliness, the gnawing nostalgia, the, the, the wildness that cannot be tamed. All embracing ache that lives at the center of the human experience and is the ultimate force that drives everything is our desire. Desire can show up in our lives as aching pain or delicious hope. Roheiser teaches that all spirituality really is, and I agree with this, is what we do with that desire. In that case, everyone has a spirituality. Religious or not, if you're a follower of Jesus or not, you have a spirituality. So to offer a striking example of how spirituality is about how one handles his or her desires, he compares the life of these two famous women, Mother Teresa and SF's own Janis Joplin. Mother Teresa was an erotic woman, not in the narrow Freudian sense, but in the sense that she had an intense, dynamic energy, an eros. Even though she looked frail and meek, Anyone who knew her knew that she was a human bulldozer. 
a woman driven by passion. However, she was very, very disciplined, dedicated to God and the poor, and everyone, everyone considered her a saint. Why? Because a saint is someone who can channel powerful eros, powerful desire in a creative and life-giving way. That's what a saint, a saint can channel the one thing, as Kierkegaard said, a saint is someone who can will the one thing, can channel all the desire and all the eros into one thing. Mother Teresa willed the one thing. She powered all her eros, all her desire, and all the powerful energy within her to one thing, God and the poor. Janis Joplin, that incredible rock star who lived on Page Street in the hate, she also died of an overdose at age 27. You may think she was the exact opposite of Mother Teresa, but that would be a mistake. She too was an erotic woman with a fiery eros, a great lover and a person with rare energy if you've ever seen old YouTube clips of her. But unlike Mother Teresa, Janice could not will the one thing. She willed many things. Her great energy went out all in all directions and eventually created an excess and tiredness that led to an early death. Rohaiza writes that Janis Joplin's activities, a total giving over of herself to creativity, performance, drugs, booze, sex, coupled with neglect of her normal rest, those things were her spirituality. That's how she channeled her eros. Remember, spirituality is just how you channel your desire, how you channel your eros. Now, as we look at both of their lives, I think if we were honest, many of us are a lot like Mother Teresa in that we want to will our lives for God and the poor, the problem is we all, like Janice, want everything else as well. We live in San Francisco. Like, this is the hedonist capital of the world. I mean, this is, we want it all here. We want, in other words, we want to be saints, but we want to experience all the sensations rock stars experience as well. I want to be a saint and a rock star. That's what I want. In the words of my three-year-old, I want both of them. If you ever ask her, choose one, she's like, both of them. One word, one word, that's one word, both of them. So what do we do with our very human and embodied desires? Because what we do with our bodies matter. What we do, our spirituality is how we channel the eros in our bodies, the desires in our bodies, how we channel this. What do we do? Many of us shut off our desires. Desires are bad. And since desire can lead to bad places, and it's true, desires can lead to bad places with the example of Janis Joplin, like desires can lead to very bad places. Following our desires lead to bad places. And because of that, maybe the goal is to desire less. Yes, let's desire less. Maybe the goal is to not desire anything. Maybe just super spiritual, I just want God, that's it, nothing else. Well, to think that you don't have to desire anything or to desire nothing, that's actually not the way of Jesus. That's, that's Buddhism. Buddhism teaches that desire is at the root of suffering. Your wants can never be satisfied. Therefore, the more you detach from wanting and desire, the more at peace you will be. But that's not the way of Jesus. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and our longings with his to hunger and thirst for that which can actually fulfill you. He, Jesus wants you to hunger and thirst. He wants you to want the whole world but not lose your soul in the process. 
Hungering and thirsting, wanting and desire are all part of being human, are all part of the way God made us with an eros, with an energy, with the spirit, with the ruach. It's part of being a body and a soul, part of being dust and divinity. And so the African philosopher and theologian captured the picture of the human person like this in the fifth century. In the opening paragraph of his confessions, St. Augustine wrote, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts, our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. This is like one of the best descriptions of what a human person is. You have made us, we, were, we are created beings, made for a certain thing, a telos, and our hearts, the seat of all of our desires and our longings are restless until it, our heart finds its home, its rest in God. If we rightly understood this line, it would change the way we approach our discipleship to Jesus and our worship of him. First, Augustine opens with a conviction about what human beings are made for. We are made by and for the creator who is known in Jesus Christ. That's what we're made for. And to be truly and fully human isn't to deny our humanity, to deny our being people of desire. We don't, we don't deny that. It's to find ourselves in relationship to the one who made us and for whom we were made. It's not about not desiring, it's about our desiring finding its proper place in the one who made us for himself. In other words, the gospel of Jesus is the way we learn how to be truly human. How our wants and our desires meet their fulfillment in Jesus, and then through Jesus, able to lovingly have the desires rightly ordered. And not just that, to be human is to be made for something, Augustine says, or directed towards something, meaning the human person is dynamic. We're made for something. James K.A. Smith says that we are existential sharks. We have to move to live. We have to move. Something has to, in us has to move. We're not static containers for ideas. We are dynamic creatures directed towards some end. We have a telos. We have a way that we're like bent in shape. So... The second theme that Augustine confession, Augustine's confession, um, the, the second thing that, that really stands out is his thing on the restless heart. This is longing, this is desire, this is hunger. We hunger and we thirst, and this is how he describes being human. Being human is not necessarily about, you know, life is a problem to be solved, it's more like life is a craving to be satisfied. We're desiring creatures. By locating the problem in the heart, what Augustine is saying is that the center of gravity of a human person is not located in the intellect, but the heart. Now, why does he say that? Because it's where our longings and love come from. And it's our loves that orient us towards some ultimate end. Our longings are eros. Again, we Christians don't love the word eros. But Jamie Smith writes this in his book, You Are What You Love. He kind of redeems this for us a bit. He says, in the truest sense, eros signals a desire and attraction that is a good feature of our creaturehood. We're created with this. Instead of setting up a false dichotomy between agape and eros, we could think of agape as rightly ordered eros. When you think about uh, Holy Week coming up and the Passion Week of Jesus, what is the passion of, of Jesus? It's his, his eros, his energy-driven to unconditional love. 
It's his face set like flint before Jerusalem to go to the cross for us, to suffer and die for us. His eros, all of his energy inside of him aimed at self-giving love. It's channeled, rightly ordered eros. The love of Christ, he says, that is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit is a redeemed, rightly ordered desire for God. You are what you desire. Rightly ordering our eros, our longings and our passions and our desires that live in our body is, is the goal of spiritual formation, is the goal of maturity in Christ. Now how do we do that with our bodies? How do we live with bodies of desire? Now I'm gonna try to get really practical here. I'm not, I'm not a really good practical teacher to be honest. Most comments I get at the end of every one of my sermons is like, what do I do with that? I'm like, pray, I would start with praying. <laughs> like, I, so I'm gonna try to get a little practical, okay, try. How do we live with bodies of desire? Two things, I'm not trying to get too practical, I'll just give you two things. First is this, we need to realize our ruined condition. We need to own and realize that we live, now, I didn't start here, by the way. I started last week with created good. I think the Bible starts in Genesis 1 and 2, not Genesis 3. That's very important to get right. But we live in a Genesis 3 sort of world. We live in a ruined condition. Our bodies, our desires were created good, but the reality is now our condition is one that is malformed and dysfunctional. We, meaning we aim our desires in all the wrong places. Our restlessness leads to disintegration. This is why we ruin relationships. This is why we push people away. This is why we have, in, in, um, in the writings of uh, Marcus Bufford in his really, really good book on how Christianity still makes emotional sense, he says that we have a human propensity to F things up. And if I say that, like, yeah, that's about right. That's literally our default position. We have a tendency to mess up everything. Dallas Willard says that one of the greatest obstacles to effective spiritual formation in Christ today is simple failure to understand and acknowledge the reality of the human situation as it affects Christians and non-Christians alike. What he means by that is like we have not squared up with the fact that we are fallen beings who, left to ourselves and most of the time, aim our desires and aim our longings and even aim our good works in the wrong direction. We are lost. Our desires are misaimed and our hearts are restless. Jen, um, Jen Michael, in her wonderful book, Teach Us to Want, writes this. She writes, the challenge to the unqualified goodness of desire can be can only be voiced when we remain committed to the most realistic view of what it means to be human. Without the doctrine of sin, we are led towards being unusually optimistic about our humanity. We will refuse to face the viciousness of our capabilities and will trust our desires too much and fear ourselves too little. So as, I, as you listen to the Sermon on Desire, what I'm not saying is God made you to desire, just go point your desire at anything you wanna desire because that's God-given. We can't just say that because our desires are misaimed. We are desiring creatures, but misaimed desires is, what, is why our hearts are so sick. What we need is a salvation. We need salvation. 
We need the salvation that Jesus offers. Our hearts are aimless and restless until they find his grace and his forgiveness. Until this happens, until our hearts are at rest in Christ, and until our longings meet Jesus, then they will continue to be malformed over and over and over again. But once we, once we receive the grace and the forgiveness of Christ, what happens is that our hearts positionally get changed in a moment, but then over time um, uh, get, get re- reformed and renovated. Slowly over time, our desires by the power of the Spirit begin to change, which brings us to our next thing. Not only do we need uh, to realize our ruined state, but we, have to, we, need to, we need a renovation of our desires. We need our desires that, are, that, that completely get aimed at the right thing. Jesus doesn't just remove our desires. So you don't become a Christian and then you don't, you don't want anymore. You still want. If you come to Jesus and you're an addict, you're still, you'll still want. But over time, Jesus renovates them, redeems our eros, and turns our eros into agape. That is, he turns our passions and our longings and our desires into the kind of person who is deeply committed to the good and the beautiful. And so as you age in Christ, it's not that your passion goes away. Your passion will still be there, just like when you were in college or just when like, you were in high school or whatever you want to say. It'll, it'll still be there, but it'll be aimed. It'll, maturity will look like you're full of eros, but you know how to live within your commitments throughout the day. You'll know how to still be a faithful spouse. You know how to be faithful to your your church community. You know how to be faithful to your commitments to Christ. You'll be full of eros, but you know how to channel those in ways that keeps you committed night and day. Now, first I wanna say that this is possible. This is possible. Your reformations of your desires, you becoming more and more a person that can will the one thing is possible. It's not like it's just impossible reserved for people like Mother Teresa. It's possible for all of us. How does it happen? Well, it happens through a a process of apprenticeship to Jesus. It happens through, um, now I'm gonna end this sermon, either this is gonna be super sexy for you because I'm ending with a diagram, you're like, oh my gosh, it's the best sermon ever because it's a diagram, or you're gonna be like, how are you gonna end end a sermon on desire with a diagram? So I don't know where you're at, but here it is. This is, we've said this before. I'm gonna show you a little bit of, this is more of like the operating system of things like that go on behind the scenes in our church. And sometimes we bring it up forward and say this is, but this is kind of how we've operated. This is how we believe that you can change. We call it the triangle of transformation, a triangle of Christ-likeness, or a theory of change. Here it is. We believe that you change through truth. You commit your life to truth. You commit your life to the way of Jesus or the practices or you can call them atomic habits if you like that book, whatever you wanna call them, (laughs) spiritual atomic habits. Through community and most importantly, honestly, the power of the spirit. So leave that up there, let me talk through these. The way that our eros, our desires, our passions that live in our bodies, our souls, our whole person are transformed by truth. Now, I told you that we are not just thinking things. That doesn't mean that we're less than thinking things. That means that we're more than thinking things. We still need truth. In order to change, we need to know what's real. We need to know what's true. An example, if you always thought your body was bad and that your spirit was good and that all God cared about was getting you to heaven when you died, you would never, ever really change because that's not true. 
Now ultimately, truth comes at us in Jesus. Jesus came to bring truth, and not just teach truth, but he said that he himself is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said things like his teachings were the truth, and the truth that you will know, and the truth will set you free. We need truth of Jesus to change, to be free. We need to know the truth, but this is harder than it seems. This is why we also need the practices. We don't just need to know things. We need to practice these things. We need to get what we know habituated into our bodies. We need these things to be rehearsed and acted out in our bodies. Ways of practicing or making every effort to get the truth of who we are in Christ into our bones and into the mental maps of our reality. Now, historically, the church has practiced things like prayer and fasting and meditation and Sabbath and giving and chastity, just to name a few. And so for us, we don't think, we don't believe that your life as a follower of Jesus, as part of our church, consists of you showing up on a Sunday morning and you giving your tithes and your offerings. That's just like, that's not it. That's part of it. A lot, a, a huge chunk of it is you learning practices that habituate your body towards what's good, what's true, what's right. Getting these things in your body. We have found in a city like San Francisco daily, devoted, undistracted prayer, meditation, and a weekly Sabbath is a great starting place for practicing the way of Jesus. Those two things, Sabbath is a very countercultural act in our city. Start there. But we can't just end there because, to be honest, like um, what I've learned as a parent of of now two children where trying to find time to pray is almost impossible and that's completely honest where I remember Tim Keller saying one time, what do you tell families that are trying to you know, have a quiet time with like children in the house and he said, if they could just stay saved, they, then they won and I was like, I never understood that but now I'm like, I get it now, 100%. Just stay saved, like that's. Um, but what I found is that when I can do, wake up and devote my time to prayer and reading the scripture, which I do every day, um, I, I could walk away going, my, my, um, my formation, I'm kind of crushing it. <laughs> Until I get around my family. And I'm like, I have a long way to go. My patience, my endurance, I think I hear my wife laughing. Um, <laughs> like I have a long way to go, a very long way to go. When I'm around my community, when I'm around the staff, when I'm around people that really know me, when I'm alone doing my disciplines, I'm like, I got this thing. Christianity, yes, I got it. The way of Jesus, I think until I'm dropped into the middle of like chaos in my house and all the things that were like, I actually, what was really there, anger, um, power, all that stuff just starts coming out of me. And I realize I have a long way to go. Lastly, we and so we need community to change. We need community to be a mirror of what is, what's, how is our formation really going? What are things we need to be paying attention to? And lastly, and probably the most important, to be honest, we need the power of the Spirit to change. For it's God's Spirit that leads us into truth. It's a Spirit that makes us one with God as we engage in spiritual practices, and it's the Spirit that brings us into fellowship with the Jesus community. The Spirit brings transformation. It's the Spirit's work in our life now. And so... What we'd like to do at this point is respond to the Spirit. 
There are things that the Spirit of God is doing right now in your body, that we believe that, that there's some healing that needs to happen in your body, some mental maps that need to get rewired, some things that, that the Spirit of the living God wanna connect for you and literally do in this room right now. And so we wanna respond to, to without any fanfare or whatever, would you stand with me? I'm gonna have David come up and lead us in time of response and have um, the band come back up on stage to lead us in, in song. So we're gonna be moving right now. We're gonna ask you to move forward, to kneel, to pray, to come forward to receive communion. Um, maybe to raise your hands in worship or to sing louder or to kneel or to, to move your body and to respond to God through your body. Let's pray. Let's pray.